Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is The Hideaway Podcast, episode 20. Chugo. Swedish. We went to Coney Island this weekend. It was my first time ever being there. My second. What'd you think? I really liked it. We did a Hauntorama. What was that? What Spookorama? Is Spookorama. Oh man, we should put the picture of no. you on the internet. <laughs> no. It is the most hideous photo that's probably ever been taken of me in all of time. I gave myself 15,000 double chins. Do you want to give a little context? So we went... <laughs> the Spookorama, I think that's what it's called, Yeah. is this like 1955 ride it's from 1955 and it's this haunted house ride and you go in these little rickety buckets and you go through this haunted house that isn't scary but for some reason i watched this csi episode where someone gets murdered in one of those spookorama things and then i was convinced that someone was gonna murder me so i was really terrified and in the photo you can see it I don't think I've ever seen you that scared. I couldn't get over it. I was like, this is stupid. There's, it's all animatronics. It's not even good. It's not even animatronics. It's like literally (laughs) puppets that are like on a string that fall towards you. Yeah. And I just couldn't stop getting, uh, I couldn't keep my eyes open. (laughs) All I was thinking about was CSI (laughs) getting murdered. And we didn't have the chance to go to the sideshow. No, it was closed. It was closed. We, we... Got there a little late. We came at seven o'clock, and the sideshow closes at eight. And we didn't. Just so weird. I think the sideshow. I would think the sideshow would be open later. I, w- I don't know what the reason is, but historically they're the kind of thing that's open all day, like it's a daytime attraction. Hmm. But yeah, on a Saturday night, closing at eight seems a little early. I know, but the big news from this week is also a little bit of sad news. But Lori Hagen has gotten injured. And had to get knee surgery on Friday. And is no longer in the show. Yeah, she has a about a four-month recovery window. We wish her the speediest, healthiest possible recovery. But in the meantime, that means we got to find a fantastically talented comedian, improviser, sort of clown to fill in her role for our yeah. New York debut of Slumber. Yeah, she's a hard one to replace, but now we've been going through, you know, Casting. So we're going to talk about casting today. Yeah, let's, let's start. Let's start there. This show has sort of three main kinds of performers in it. It has a comedian in it. It has dancers in it, and it has circus performers in it. And each of those you sort of cast a little bit differently. For dance, I'm more accustomed to dance auditions, having been a performer myself. But we held a about three different groups of thirty people who had sent in their dance videos and what we were looking for is basically originality, but also being able to achieve and execute the dance cleanly and precisely and in the style of Keone and Mari. So when we went to the dance auditions, what we looked for was all of those things. And then we had them improvise at the end to really show kind of their own flair and style of dance. I thought one of the interesting things that Mari pointed out was how there are essentially two categories that most kinds of dancers fit into. And one is sort of the solo dancer, I'll, I'll describe it, where the person can really, when you are just watching them, 
capture your interest and be amazing and totally impress you, but then put in the context of a group, they aren't great at fitting into a group and fitting into an image, which is the second category, which is people whose dance training predominantly has happened in dance companies, uh, where the most important things that you're fitting in and that, you know, you're part of this bigger picture. And we needed both. We needed dancers who could stand out when we needed them to stand out and fit into the picture when we need them to fit in the picture. And we found three of them. <laughs> yeah. So, Josh, tell me how you cast for Circus, because when I met you, that's what you were doing, specifically. Yeah, my background has been in casting Circus acts for a while now. I think the most important thing before you can even really start the casting process is for the person who is doing the casting to have a really, really wide knowledge base of all the different kinds of skills and disciplines that people do so that you can sort of uh, understand what makes any individual performer unique or what certain tricks you see in their videos are hard ones or just visually impressive ones. So once you have a good grasp on sort of just the kinds of tricks people do and the kinds of techniques there are, there are a few different ways to find circus performers. Unfortunately for us in America, there aren't as many really, really high quality performers as there are in Europe or in Montreal. Well, they might be the Americans living in Montreal or Europe. Right. <laughs> There's not a circus school in New York that teaches essentially a higher education version of circus where you can pursue it professionally. Most of the kinds of teaching schools in New York are for amateurs or they're for recreational purposes. Or kids. Or for kids. Or just for fun. But the purpose is not to make turn people into professional circus performers necessarily. So what we have to do is we have to find these people and then bring them in from elsewhere. Unless, like our contortionist, Olga, they're fortunate enough, we're fortunate enough that they already live in New York City. So as an example, for Olga, our contortionist, we actually found her through one of our previous guests, Gypsy Snyder. And I had seen Olga in Pippin before, so I was already sort of aware that she could, you know, crush it on stage. But I had never seen her do a solo contortion number or seen her in just a circus context. And then, you know, once you once you find a few people who you're interested, you have to go look at their videos, you go to their website, you meet them in person. If you don't have the opportunity to see them live, strongly recommend seeing them live before you hire them. Uh, and then you sort of just see if they're the right fit for, for your show. The other circus performers in the show include... I think everyone in the show is actually a main character. The more and more we talk about the show, you know, like typically it's like the lead and the supporting role and then the ensemble mm. in this show i think that everyone has a such a specific role and part and purpose that it's really such an ensemble show yeah. it's also a little bit of a difference between the casting circus forms and casting dancers and that you and i are in the process of writing these shows Often we'll think about the circus performers from much earlier on than we'll think about the dancers. Mm -hmm. Because when we're thinking about the dancers, we're actually thinking about the choreography style. And we're going, okay, we know we want three girls and we know we want it in Keone and Mari's style. And then we'll go find those girls. But for circus, it's much more like, okay, we want a contortion act. Or in the case of um, our aerial number, we really want a duo trapeze number. And because you're thinking about that so early on, your choices are already shorter. Like my list of girls who do a duo trapeze act is, you know, it's got five or six uh, couples on it who I really, really like. And once you only have five or six, it's pretty easy to imagine them, imagine them in your head and then try to get those, those people. So there's a little bit of a difference in that sense. But I'm, I'm most looking forward to our auditions on Friday for the actors. Yeah, I think this one is definitely the hardest audition because... Like I was saying earlier, it's so, it's not tangible if they can do it or not. So it's really, it's like a surprise. Every time someone comes into the room, it's like, okay, let's see what, what they bring to this character. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, we know 
Olga, what she looks like, what her movement quality is, we know what she's going to bring to the character, right? And she's perfect for it. Versus this role, you know, with Lori, we knew exactly what she was going to bring and she's going to slay it. For the auditions, some of these girls we've never met or seen perform live. So it'll be really cool to see everyone's different take on the character and different qualities that they bring. And I think casting for an actor, improviser, comedian in a circus is a little bit different than you would say in a regular theater show because of the fact that they can see the audience. Like, yes. I don't want to give anything away from Slumber, but the comedy, the comedian, this character has to talk to the audience at some and point. And be comfortable. And be comfortable with that in the show where, you know, it's not just a play where they're talking to their scene partner and so across the dinner table. You have to be able to improv in the moment if somebody's heckling you that night or... <laughs> If there's something... That sounds like my my nightmare. Oh, man. I mean, I, I would bomb this audition if I was <laughs> I on the other it. side of the table. But you sort of be able to be able to play with what you got. You know, if there's somebody in the in the front row who's perfect to make a joke about or use, like, you should yeah. be able to use that. And trying to find that quality in audition is a, is a bit of a challenge. But I think, I think we'll find the person. We have some amazing girls coming in who I'm just excited to see in person. Yeah. If you have any friends or colleagues who you think would be perfect for our show, send you the background of improv, stand-up comedy, clowning, comedy acting, uh, please tell them to submit to hello at hideawaycircus.com. We're holding auditions this Friday. We have been getting quite a large response from people, and we do try to respond to every single email, but if we don't get back to you immediately, my apologies, but we will get back to you. We started something new, thanks to Dave Lerner, who we shouted out to our first podcast. What, what? Dave Lerner! Dave Lerner has a, a podcast called Venture Studio. He was our professor uh, at Columbia. He runs the entrepreneurship school. And is an all-around really cool dude and smart, and, and thankfully he likes helping us. But he helps us, uh, you know, kind of flesh out ideas, and one of his ideas was that we should start a email blast basically with a roundup of news, ticket offers, reviews, interesting things to do with circus, circus, maybe the little theater. Um, so make sure to subscribe to our email list. It's on our website. You can go to our website, subscribe, and you'll get fun things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we really want to be valuable for you guys who listen to the podcast, get our email, or come see our show. Aside from just being like an awesome night out, we want you guys to be part of this bigger conversation with us. We want you to stay up to date. And I think the email is going to be a really good way to do that. And, you know, there are discount codes on there for our shows and other people's shows. So if you just want, you know, a little bit off the ticket, if you when you sign up, you'll get an email that sends you a 10% off code. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> Um, our guest today is Keith Nelson. Keith runs, along with Stephanie Monceau, uh, the Bindlestiff Family Circus, which is a nonprofit circus organization here in New York City. They've been around for a few decades now. They're based in Brooklyn and actually now also up in Hudson, New York. But what was really great uh, talking to Keith about was the circus community in New York City. Bindlestiff is a staple of New York. They host an open variety night every month where all the local circus performers come and perform and show their new work. They have youth programs. They organize the uh, annual Unicycle Festival, and they put on you know full-scale productions, one recently called the Cardboard and Duct Tape Spectacular. And we talk about 
all that stuff, how Bindlestiff got started, and what it's like being a circus performer in New York. If you enjoy today's episode, make sure to like us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Subscribe to our mailing list. Subscribe to our mailing list at hideawaycircus.com. And, oh yeah, follow us on Twitter. Twitter tweet us. Twitter tweet us. <laughs> All right, here's our interview with Keith Nelson. Where are you from originally, Keith? Um, born in Massachusetts, raised in North Carolina, and New York City for 25 some years now. Were you into circus as a kid? I was, um, I had a few moments in my um, youth that I would say planted seeds. One is that I went to a Mexican mud show and for 25 cents, you could see the elephant dog. Um, so I paid the 25 What's cents. What's an elephant dog? Right, I paid the 25 cents. I walked on the, under the other side of the wall, and there was a shaved dog. At which point, in my mind, at what age eight, I was like, I can shave a dog and make money. Um, so I think that had a very strong impact for uh, in the future. Um, and then also, a few years later, I got an Emmett Kelly ventriloquist doll. Oh. Why you would have a ventriloquist doll of a silent clown is something that I later on questioned. Um, but I would say that moment really put like the tramp clown idea into you know into my mind. But who got you with the clown? My parents. So were um, they into circus at all? Or? They weren't against circus. Yeah. Um, I mean, my parent. Um, Parents are both educators. My granddad was a furniture and art designer, architect um, from New York. So, you know, the idea of art is in your life mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I was raised with. Um, but I wouldn't say that circus was any higher than or lower than any other art form, which I think, you know, kind of helped in, yeah. in yeah. that formation. When did you try to pursue it as a career? Um, I went to Hampshire College and studied anarchist theory. While I was at Hampshire, um, my best friend was David Hunt, who went on to um, found Circus Bella. He's currently now with um, Prescott um, Youth Program. He ran ICO for a while, but he was my original juggling partner. Turned me on to juggling. Um, we put an act together. Um, so it was very much his influence that got me into juggling and then about a year later I traded a bottle of whiskey with a bunch of jugglers for a fire eating lesson <laughs> then got through with Hampshire moved to New York and got a job as a um, fire eater in an exotic cabaret and it was really at that moment outside of um, doing devil sticks at like Grateful Dead shows and kind of you know street busking but it was the moment of being a fire eater in a New York club that I was like, you can make a living doing this. <laughs> and that was not quite 30 years ago. Um, wow. And since then, it's been... It's history. It's, it's all history. So I've always had a question about fire eating. It's not good for you. Don't do it. <laughs> I, am, like, I can't imagine it tastes good, right? Um, it I mean... Is it, did you just get used to it? Did you huff gasoline as a kid? No. Then, yeah, if you, you know... No, <laughs> I mean, I love the smell of gas, but... If you, um, if you, it's not... Yeah, I mean, it's bad for you. It tastes like crap, um... But it looks cool. But people say it looks cool. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so you come to New York and you start doing this for a living, doing fire breathing. Mm -hmm. Are you living in Brooklyn at this point? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. I mean, I've been in the same place in Brooklyn for 25 years. Um, before that, I lived in 14th Street when I 
what brought me to um, Brooklyn in the beginning was an internship with Autonomy Media, which is a radical book publishing collective oh. that we I still live in the book, the warehouse of. And the early days of Bindlestiff, we were a traveling circus with a bookmobile. <laughs> um, so like get you know keeping people educated to us was just as important as entertaining. Can you tell the story of the early days of Bindlestiff and why you guys started it and this this, this struggle? The early days, <laughs> of, I mean. The building that we live in um, also houses Circus Amok. Um, so, the, uh, you know, we come from, I would say, one of the most populated circus buildings in of old school circus in yeah. New York. Um, you know, the only one that houses two circuses. So the, the block situation definitely had, you know, had a nice effect. Um, I, I met Stephanie Monsu fair, um, about the same time that, you know, I started eating fire professionally. Taught her how to eat fire. Um, we put together a fire eating act that we were kind of touring around the late night clubs of New York. This is pre-Giuliani, beginning of Giuliani, um, and started meeting the other entertainers, you know, that were working that era. This is like early '90s, um, and Giuliani was beginning to shut down pretty much every DIY venue in the city. Uh, so, kind of, we took that as um, an idea of like, let's take this group of people and get out of the city for regular periods of time. Um, we were running a small um, kind of weekly cabaret at a place called the Charleston Bar and Grill, which is on Bedford back in Williamsburg when it was really the only bar <laughs> in Brooklyn. Um, and it was you know, a little back room of a bar with maybe an eight foot ceiling that had a mixture of jugglers and clowns and drag queens and um, you know, pretty much it's an open stage sort of atmosphere. And you, and each year, each week we would have a different theme, um, you know, which could be anything from like revolution to the fine points of New York um, or a Copacabana sort of thing. You know, so each week we were like coming up with like new ideas and creating kind of around that. Um, and that was that was kind of the formative period of the earliest part of Bindlestiff. Um, was it called Bindlestiff at that yeah, we, time? Yeah, we, um, we were basically flipping through a thesaurus, and Bindlestiff's a term for vagabond or hobo. It actually means to stick in the bundle. <laughs> um, and our first, you know, first rounds were basically Steph and I literally hopping trains with a case in our hand of pyrotechnics and a case of costumes and hoping for the best. Were you doing a version of uh, the Kinko character or the hobo-esque character at that time? Soon after, I would say the earliest days was just kind of... Um, fire eating um like er, two of us went to burning man um back in i guess it's like 94 95 and we came across a circus tent that was being burnt um circus <laughs> wow. ridiculous which is um chicken john was um like screw circus i'm done with it um and in the middle of the desert he was burning his tent wow um, i would have loved to see that it was um one of those magic moments and then kind of we hung out with him for the evening and came up with the idea of um meeting up with him halfway across the country and doing a combined show tour of the bindlestiff family circus and circus ridiculous combined shows um we were supposed they were supposed to all meet up with us and um, they were a few weeks late because one person was in jail, one person was in rehab, like they, um, three of their vehicles didn't work. Um, so we ended up doing the first few weeks on our own. 
um, before we met up with the big combined show. <laughs> um, and then presumably you came back to New York City after that tour. And, and yeah, we came back to New York and um, have kept kind of our, you know, even though it shifted in time frame and kind of direction, but we've kept a winter cabaret season, which now sometimes happens in the spring, um, but kind of our annual New York period of really focusing on um a show that's built, you know, with adult performers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it has been like to stay in New York over the past 20 years? Because Lindsay and I often talk about how difficult it is to make New York a strong circus community because of the high rent and the way in which the city is geared towards much more theater than it is to circus as an art form. I, I mean, New York for any DIY art form is nearly impossible. Um, when I first moved here, you could get away with doing four or five cabaret shows, making barely enough to survive, but you could survive doing art. Um, now, I know very few new artists coming to town who are able to survive doing art. They're having to now have a 60 hour a week job and try to figure out how to do their art around that. Um, it's very, I mean, now much more difficult than it was back then. You know, we moved, the economic climate was a little bit different back then, not saying that it was cheap in any sort of way. Um, there was more community art space. I mean, Williamsburg at that point was affordable for big spaces if groups worked together to do that. Um, you know, ten, five, ten years ago, that was Bushwick. Mm. And now Detroit. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's... The United States as a whole is a very difficult place, especially now to do circus, um, especially because of the expectations of what presenters want from circus now. Mm. Um, there's no way that as Americans we will ever be able to compete on the international market. Our system does not allow us a creation time. Our system does not allow breaks for circus folk. Um, the funding is not there, you know, and when um, a French company can come in and, and pay the theater to present their show, how can you? Compete how can we compete with that? Um, Nonetheless, though, Bindlestiff has survived. We've survived, um, you know, we're in our, on, I think, around our 25th year. And are um, you guys, you are a nonprofit now, but did you start out as a nonprofit? We started off as um, under the wings of Autonomy Media as a nonprofit. So we've always mentally been in the nonprofit, anti profit mentality. <laughs> um, I would say anti profit in the Even beginning. Even more than nonprofit. Even more than nonprofit. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning, we were like anti microphone, anti tech, you know, very like bringing down to the raw nature of you know, early circus forms. What do you think appealed and still appeals to you about um, those those aspects of, um, or thematic aspects? Like our newest show is a cardboard and duct tape spectacular, um, which is, I would say, definitely a tip of the hat to our earliest roots of, you know, working with your environment to create show. Um, it's also a reaction to watching now, um, like you go see a Cirque show, if they have a tech glitch, entertainment stops and all the emergency lights go on and they wait to either fix it or jump into the second half and the audience misses three quarters of a show because of that. We come from the show must go on mentality. You know, if something happens, you send the clowns out, you make them work. To me, you know, circus and, and variety are just like a raw need of humanity um, and has been you know, for thousands of years, and in this country for hundreds of years. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
whether or not the fact that Bindlestiff is now a cultural institution for circus performers in New York was something that you guys were aiming for or something that sort of happened as a byproduct. Because when I was in Smirkus and I was like, I'm going to New York, at least two or three people, including Peter Rafano, was like, make sure you meet Keith Nelson. And then when I got here, I was like, have you seen the Bindlestiff Variety Night? Like, it's just constantly like, mm-hmm. are you checked in with this cultural institution? We've been, since day one, um have really been connected to the whole circus community as a whole. Um, I come from kind of an anarchist, radical politic tradition where community is a crucial part of what we do and why we live. Um, so to take that concept of community and apply it within the circus realm um, was kind of just a natural, easy shift that I think Bindlestiff tapped into really early on. Um, then, you know, going into the um, late or I guess early 2000s, you know, kind of or at that point, there was a circus community in New York, but not um, different than it is today. You know, we come out we came out of the um, post neo vaudevillian period of the 80s into the early 90s, which if you look at what was happening on the national level in circus, um, it was pretty phenomenal. This is when Universal was forming, 1994. Um, Jim Rose it was just finishing Lollapalooza, so the American Sideshow was once again in the vernacular. Circus Amok was starting to do free shows in the parks of New York. Um, you know, some of the you know, really vibrant shows out there were forming in, in this period, long before we call it, anybody called it contemporary. It was just circus. Yeah. Um, so then, kind of with that community mindset, in um, 2002, um, we got a space grant from Shishama to open the last vaudeville house on Times Square, if you will. Um, and for three years, we ran Bindlestiff's Palace of Variety on 42nd Street, at which point we had, um, for a while, we were running eight shows a day out of there um, until we realized that today's circus folks can't handle that kind of schedule anymore. And had 80, you know, an 80 seat house with a 25 foot fly. Huh. Um, and we're on 42nd street. We were, um, right behind, right next to what was slots of fun at that point. They were tearing down the last part of the peep show culture mm-hmm. and, but it was between, um, six and Broadway. And what it's, year was this? This would have been 92 or 2002, three and four. 2002, it's now three, a bank four. of America skyscraper. <laughs> I know exactly. Okay. Um, but for, there were three three theaters and a few art spaces all in this row that Shishama oversaw. Um, Happy Hour had their own theater space for a while. We were doing multiple shows, and this is where you saw um, Eric Davis, the Red Bastard, mm-hmm. in his early formative years of discovering buffoonery. Skip Shirey, the musician, was just starting his hours, um, and this was all in our theater, um, was starting Skip's Hours of Charm. Um, you know, if you kind of look around at who's who's out there on the international market the number of folks that can you know had their feet on our stage in their early formative period mm-hmm. is um pretty phenomenal um you know if they tithed we wouldn't have any financial issues <laughs> um is that part of the bindle stiff um mission to to help cultivate uh greener performers or is that just a byproduct of what happened creating um the future of circus is definitely a major part of what bindlestiff does if you look at um i mean you know if we were in a communist system that actually paid people for community work i think we'd be doing fine Um, but you know if you look at 
so many of our projects. We've got Bindlestiff's Cavalcade of Youth, which we were looking around and seeing that everybody is teaching kids how to do circus stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody is showing them, with maybe the exception of Smirkus at that point, that you can actually make a living doing circus and how to take these skills and put them into your three to seven minute act. Mm -hmm. So we kind of saw that need in New York. Um, and, you know, so Cavalcade of Youth was basically built in order to create a stage for the young performers to start growing within. Um, our monthly Bindlestiff um, open stage variety show started as Lily Lippitt's open stage before that, going back to 2002 and three. Um, but, you know, since then, we've always tried to have an open mic situation where somebody could hang a trapeze, throw a triple with a juggling club and could safely and comfortably suck if needed. Um, because, you know, if we want folks to get better, there needs, right, there to, be needs to be a place for them to they, start. Yeah. yeah. And or even pros to try to see if something totally fails, you know, mm -hmm. like um, which is, you know, part of the reason we got booted out of Galapagos is like I never worried about the audience, you know, like this night is for us to make sure the artists grow. Mm -hmm. Luckily, people want to come see that. And we've had great houses throughout. But is it currently playing at Dixon Place? Well, yes, yeah, currently at Dixon Place. It's been um, we've been there three years now. Yeah. When's the next one? October, what's that, third? Oh, great. Um, it's first Monday of every month, except um, the the funding is only for 10 months a year, so we take two months a year off. This year it was July 4th and Labor Day coming up. That's a good idea. Where do you guys get your funding? We um, we just, this year we lost our New York State Council of the Arts funding. We get Department NISCA, of... NISCA, is that NISCA? Yeah, that's yeah. NISCA. We get, um, we've been funded by um, Department of Cultural Affairs for a number of years, mm -hmm. and I hope and fingers crossed that that will continue. Yeah. Um, we get, um, we also do a lot of um, youth programming that Stephanie focuses on mm -hmm. up in um, Columbia County, mm -hmm. primarily with, um, you know, disadvantaged youth. And um, and that is all like small grant funding from foundations up there. Um, we get you know a fair amount from individual support, a little bit from corporate support, um, but a lot of just writing grants and hoping yeah. for the best. Um, we're now kind of in the process of trying to make it so Steph and I are doing less and less, like so we can actually be artists again. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can touch on the various programs you do have going on at the moment. So we've talked a little about the Cavalcade of Youth and about Open Stage, but you have the Unicycle Festival coming up. We have up. the New York City Unicycle Festival coming up in a week and a half. Um, that And that it in, now includes two days of long-distance riding. Um, the first day is at, um, 20 or 30 miles around Manhattan. Um, the second day is a 13-mile trek over the Brooklyn Bridge to Coney Island, traditionally. <sighs> Um, and then Saturday and Sunday happen on Governor's Island, and I would say the biggest part of that is the Learn to Ride area, where I think last year we had 500 people try unicycles for potentially the first time. <laughs> um, but we also have unicycle basketball, unicycle hockey, unicycle sumo wrestling. Um, I mean, basically, like 10 years ago, I got um, obsessed with riding a unicycle. And in most of my directions, it's like with obsession, I'm like, how can I lose a lot of money with this obsession? <laughs> um, and that timed with um, me being interviewed by, by the New York Times and saying something on the way of, it was like dreams that you would have for New York. And I was like, 
um, unicycle lanes and better access to the bridges because I'm trying to ride all the bridges in New York City on unicycle. Um, to which um, Leslie Koch at Governor's Island sent me an email saying, we get a lot of bicycles out here. We're just starting to do a lot of programming. Maybe we can figure out a unicycle sort of thing. Um, so that was seven years ago and it was, you know, the first. What's appealing to you about unicycling as a form? For me, um, health of, you know, needing something as I kind of entered middle age to keep my body moving and not have to get into running or go to a gym. Um, the quirky community that surrounded it in the same way, you know, I've been a juggler for decades, you know, it's like one of those skills that it, it, you have people from all different types of, um, all different walks of life coming together and have this one thing that keeps them together um, and brings them together. Um, you know, rich, poor, it's kind of like the old smoking sections, you know, of just a variety of people that are about this one thing. Um, you can always find parking it's the only vehicle in New York that gets smiles. You know, if you're on a bicycle, people are like flip, flipping you the bird and yelling at you all the time. Yeah. On a unicycle, it's almost always, hey, you know, <laughs> even communities who have gotten rid of the bike lanes through their community. Like when we, when I, you know, ride through the Hasidic neighborhoods, the unicycle gets positive <laughs> feedback. We saw feedback. A, a unicycle rider today. That's yeah, morning. on Third Avenue. I oh, see him cool. all the time. He comes, but it's a hot, it's a. He's got a very tall unicycle for somebody. Like a big wheel? Yeah, or, yeah, big exa wheel. yeah, exactly, a big wheel. Yeah, no, I mean, the big wheels make a big difference. I mean, that's like I did the five-row bike tour, which is like 45 miles. On a um, unicycle? On a unicycle. Does that hurt your butt? Um, it hurts an area near the butt. <laughs> <laughs> How do you start to learn the unicycle? You you accept one to two months of hopelessness. <laughs> and the moment you accept the ho I mean, it's like any circus skill on the higher level. Like, there's a point where you're like, I'm going to learn this. Mm -hmm. And then you it's time in the saddle. You know, it's a lot of time of leaning up against a wall. And then a month and a half later, you go three feet and your body's like, wait, I felt something. Mm -hmm. Um and then it clicks. And then it clicks, or it clicks a little bit. You know, at least you get that moment of it starting to click. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I say it, it falls, you know, it's kind of why anybody's drawn to circus. Like, you, circus, it's, it's these impossible feats. You're like, wait, maybe I can do that. Yeah. Um, Is there a book or a movie or a show that you would recommend to somebody who's coming up, you know, in circus as something, as a piece of reference that you really like or something that inspired you? Oh, well, um, Hovey Burgess's circus techniques started, I think, the Australian system um, of, you know, just like, how do you break this down and do it? Dave Finnegan's books on, like, just basic skills. Um, Hovey's the head of your board, right? Hovey's our, yeah, chairman of the board. Yeah. And he gets back on a train today, I think, for our <laughs> board meeting tonight. Oh, nice. Um, He's amazing. We, I was lucky enough to ride the subway back with him from uh, Circa Mano Vasquez. Uh -huh. And I just was like... I just sat in silence the whole time and listened. Oh, Hubby's amazing. I mean, he's um, such a treasure to the New York circus community. Um, but now he hangs out mostly at the burlesque show, so you have to go there if you want to see him. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad place to hang. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's, you know, my big thing to, to folks is just get out there, meet other people, um, Find the communities. You know, if you're a juggler, there's juggling communities everywhere. You know, get get involved. Mm -hmm. um, because I think what's happening now is more and more people are learning through a screen and not 
and losing the, um, you know, having the mentor relationship, um, which is, I think, part of the reason that you're not having the, the chutzpah, the, the showbiz aspect, because that's passed, I think, through mentors, not through the other forms that are being used. Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten that's stuck in with you for a while? Stuck in. Stuck in. <laughs> Oh, so, um, I, my mantra is 15 minutes a day of whatever skill you're trying to work on, you know, to do that. Um, I also go with damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Um, <laughs> and, and then, um, you know, if you can do what you want to do for 10 years, you're going to be able to make it doing that. But getting to that 10 year point. Um, it's when you want to quit. Um, <laughs> I mean, still, you want to quit sometimes after 10, but you've now shown that, you know, it can work. Um, Keith, thank you so much. My pleasure. Really Absolutely. Pleasure and thanks, thanks for coming over and doing it. That was our interview with Keith Nelson. We really hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Also, sign up for our email list. We're sending out circus news, reviews, and discounts every single Friday. Don't miss out. Have a good week. I got up there eventually. Bye. <laughs>